Hey, I am so glad that you're joining me in the honest conversations about all things family. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor and a mom. Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. This is going to be a place for us to be real about the mess of parenting. Um, It's a place for you to feel validated and to find some self-compassion and some hope for the road ahead. Let's stand in the mud together because personally I think that is the absolute best place to start. Welcome to the very first episode of Parenting in the Trenches. The first five episodes are going to be part of a mini-series that I will be doing on managing anxiety, that unwanted house guest. It was already a hot topic leading up to COVID-19, but the world's current crisis has caused many of us to feel a true sense of anxiety for the very first time. Now we get it. It's a thing that we're having to learn about and we're having to manage, both in ourselves and in our kids. So for today, I want to kick off this series by spending some time together looking at what anxiety is, some of the factors that lead to feeling it, the early warning signs, and what we can do to nip it in the bud and fend it off. You might be tempted to skip ahead for the first part because asking the basic question, what is anxiety, might feel too basic. But I'm going to urge you to stick with me just for a couple minutes on this one because you might find out something new or different than what you assumed anxiety to be. First off, anxiety is not just big worry. In fact, anxiety, I would argue, is not even technically what we know of as an emotion. And I'm not saying that it doesn't pair up with worry, because it does. I just want to clarify right out of the gate that it isn't one and the same. And that actually has consequences for how we choose to manage it. So if it's not like other emotions, then what the heck is it? Anxiety is really your body's physiological response to stress and perceived danger. And while each person's body experiences this slightly different from one another, there are some common symptoms that will show up for most of us. If you've experienced anxiety, you'll know what I'm talking about. Tingling in your limbs, racing heartbeat, dilated pupils, irritation, shaky hands and legs, flushed cheeks, can't speak, Headaches, stomach aches, sweating, short of breath, or even a tightness in your chest. It can cause some pretty inconvenient digestive issues as well. Just saying. This package of physiological sensation is our body's attempt to prepare for staying safe when we sense risk. It's our autonomic nervous system hard at work flooding our bodies with hormones and chemicals so that we can act fast should we need to. But when it's active and not really needed, it's no longer functional or serving us. Quite the opposite, really. It's annoying and sometimes actually downright scary. It makes us pull out of things that we want to engage in. It tells us you better lay low and avoid certain things. It steals joy out of things that you should love. And then what can start to happen is you anticipate the anxiety so that you can dodge that feeling itself. And you learn to fear the fear. 
Anxiety can kind of hang around in the background for a long time, making us feel this low level of being on edge, irritable, slightly nauseated, or like something could pop up at any time. We're just always kind of ready. But it can also come on like a strong wave in the form of a panic attack. It's really uncomfortable. And for those of us who are not practiced at noticing what's going on in our bodies, and for kids who don't yet have the language to describe what they're feeling, it can be extra challenging to detect it and also to manage it. It's the reason why anxious kids act out. They're overwhelmed by sensations. They feel caught off guard. They didn't see it coming. And they don't have the tools to say what's going on or to cope with it. Still with me? If this idea that anxiety is not just another emotion, and that's new to you, you aren't alone. When I talk about anxiety, I'm not talking about the day-to-day worries. Okay, still with me? If this idea that anxiety is not just another emotion is new to you, you aren't alone. So when I talk about anxiety, I just want you to know that I'm not talking about day-to-day worry. I'm talking about a wired-in alarm system that's calibrated to go off too easily. It's primed to sound that bell when there's no smoke in the building. And the longer we leave this alarm primed to go off, the harder it is to recalibrate it. So that's why I want to kick this series off with the concept of how to catch it early, to learn skills to manage it before it feels out of hand. So let's start off by talking about some of the factors that can lead to anxiety. First off, it does run in families, so you're more likely to experience it if those family genes are wreaking havoc on that one. So think grandparents, aunts and uncles, um, parents. Does anybody in your family history have um, a struggle that's significant with anxiety? But I also often say that anxiety is contagious. And what I mean by that is that when we're surrounded by anxiety in others, it can spill over and push go on our own nervous systems as well. So if you have anxious kids, you probably know what I'm talking about. Because as parents, one of our key pathways to connection with our kids is to be attuned. We have one foot in their world so that we can relate to their experience and help them know We get them, we understand them, and we care about them. It's the pathway for empathy. But when you're immersed in anxious experiences for what feels like or is like days on end, it's rare to come out of that without having taken on some of that anxiety yourself. So you might notice that at the end of the day, it takes you way longer to wind down than it used to, that your insides are more tightly wound and that you're depleted from trying to work against that anxiety for hours on end. Your own heart rate might go up. Your words might come out flustered and unclear. And you might feel the tension built up in your neck and your shoulders. I don't know, who knows, maybe you're the one laying awake at night with a headache or racing thoughts. I remember when our oldest daughter was just about like maybe two, three, she was still in a five-point Um, harness I remember that in her car seat she went through a phase of really significant waves of anxiety 
to the point where when she got upset and we couldn't quite solve it or figure it out fast enough, she would full on hyperventilate. And my husband and I have this vivid recall of the time that we were maybe partway through a half hour drive coming home from a pretty highly stimulated family gathering and she was tired and she did not want to go in her car seat and you could just see that she felt constrained and panicky but you know we were just figuring let's just get her home get her to bed she's overtired we just got to get to point b we got about five minutes down the highway and the writhing that she was doing in that car seat turned into gut-wrenching wails She was besides herself. She looked terrified and trapped and could barely catch her breath. And every time now that we drive that route, the exit sign of that truck stop that we pulled over in at night stands out to us like a flashback. As a decade later, we had veered into this lot. We really didn't give a shit about the parking lines. We jumped out of the car, hearts racing, and ripped her out of that seat. At that point, even holding her was too much contact for her. She flailed, gasped for air, pushed me away, just screaming. She was shuddering between her cries. She was drenched in sweat. It was raining, it was dark, it was cold. She had no shoes on um, and she was drenched in sweat, but I just could tell she needed room. She wanted me to put her down. So as I tried to set her on the ground, I, you know, I was just realizing my words didn't work, holding her didn't work, and I felt really helpless. We felt overwhelmed and kind of useless standing there on the side of the road in the dark. And we were wondering, how are we going to get back in that vehicle and get home? Her anxiety had definitely spilled over. We felt a degree of what she was feeling. And I noticed that I was holding my own breath. My own heart was going a mile a minute. And by the time I had set her down on the ground, my arms were shaking. The same spillover is true for kids of anxious parents. Parents who find themselves irritable, running on fumes, and who have to leave the room to deal with a panic attack are visible to their kids, whether they like it or not. It's part of our human relationships. We feel the aftershocks of a person's earthquake in our own bones. And all too often, I see parents attempt to hide their own struggles with anxiety from their kids with the most loving intentions of protecting them from it. But it actually ends up messaging to kids that it's something we need to be quiet about, ashamed of, internalize, and we just don't talk about it. It leaves kids who can sniff it out on you anyway in a position where they can't talk about it either. They can't name the thing that's obvious in the room. And it becomes this loop of increased isolation, shame, and sense of being stuck. When we dare to pull the plug on that hiding strategy and name it out loud instead, describe it, own it, it permits everyone to feel less crazy. Because what they're feeling and seeing is not acknowledged as real. It's validating. And the beauty of putting it out there is that you now have something out in the open to work with. 
And please trust me, anxiety is one of the most treatable mental health conditions. So you really can work on it and see incredible improvements. The stats say so. In episode three of this series on anxiety, we'll specifically focus on the effects of parent burnout and preventing and managing our own anxiety. As humans, we want to know why things happen. Why do some people end up having anxiety to begin with? Some of the external things that can lead to or build the stage for anxiety are things like sudden loss, which by the way does not have to mean death. It can be a loss of a career, a significant change in a sense of freedom, a loss of culture, loss of proximity to somebody that you are dependent on or used to being really close to. We're all experiencing some of that right now. You can also set the stage for anxiety with things like illness or emotional trauma, substance misuse, prolonged stress at work or at school or in your family, and world events that shake your sense of safety and security like war or this thing we're all in, this pandemic. When anxiety hits hard, it isn't always easy to pinpoint an immediate trigger and it can pop up at random times. I have a lot of clients who come in to deal with panic attacks and the first thing that they go to is asking, why can I not identify a trigger that made it happen in the minutes before it struck? But that immediate relationship between something happening in the now and the panic that follows is more of what happens in a situation where there's a specific phobia. But not so much if you're experiencing a generalized anxiety disorder or a panic disorder. Our fight-flight-freeze response can show up when there's no risk in the moment. It's just the smoke alarm sounding because there's an, it's overly sensitive to the stress that's built up in the body. The random nature of it makes us that much more likely to fear the anxiety itself. A couple of years ago, I met with a woman who was in her mid-20s. She came in for counseling because after years of silently suffering with a panic disorder, things had gotten so bad for her that she finally brought it up with her doctor, who wisely said she didn't have to live like this. And while medication might be somewhat helpful, there were tools she could also learn to help her manage the attacks as well. So he referred her for counseling. And after a few sessions, she realized that she had become so terrified of the attacks themselves because they were happening in a public place and she was responsible for little ones. She had two kids under the age of five and she always was panicky about this anticipating of having a panic attack while at a grocery store, but responsible for the two kids in their, in their um, stroller. She had this moment when reflecting on what happens for her, where she caught that the reason it had grown out of control, and she couldn't anymore nip it in the bud, was that she had this instinct when first clues of anxiety would show up, she would hunker down, tighten up, and prep for the panic to flood her. So really the first thing she was going to have to address was the built-up fear about having a panic attack. 
As she built up her toolkit of skills around how to manage the panic itself, it grew her confidence in being able to handle it, which then allowed her to just lower that anticipatory stress and reduce the frequency of the attacks. And finally, she felt like she was making gains. When we worked through some of the factors that had set the stage for anxiety for her anxiety to perform on and found ways for her to feel some agency and power in managing them, gradually her body followed suit. It realized it didn't need that alarm to go off the way it was going off. She was now able to say things to herself like, if I have a panic attack, I know it will pass. It's not physically harming me. I've talked to my kids about what happens for me and what's going to, what we're going to do about it, that we're a team, I will take care of myself, we're good to go. Um, We know what we're going to do if it hits at a playground or in the mall. And this just allowed her to get back to life rather than having this pattern develop of, I have to stay home, I have to stay at a site, we have to be safe all the time. So you can see why it's worth catching it early, right? before that one-time reaction becomes a pattern and starts to set in and unpack its bag in your guest room. You know, we don't want it part of our family. And here's some early warning signs of anxiety. Chronic worrying or over-preparing because you just don't quite trust yourself to handle the unknown. A fear of failing And we all need a little bit of, you know, performance anxiety. But what I'm talking about is a fear of failing as more of a moral or a value system that we place on perfecting things rather than putting in effort. Where the focus is more on winning or the ideal outcome than what we've experienced in the process. Isolation or silence. It's one of those early warning signs hiding your feelings, or not having the language to express them. Avoidance is another one, making excuses, cancelling plans, and not feeling able to assert yourself or set a boundary. Feeling restless, irritable, agitated, or tense all the time. And all those physiological symptoms that we talked about earlier are cues that anxiety is on its way. And having things done for you when you can do them yourself. Learned helplessness can build a stage for anxiety which really makes you feel out of control and incapable of handling what's in front of you. But I know you don't just want to hear about what it looks and feels like. You also want to know how to start dealing with it. So let's talk about that. I called this mini-series Anxiety the Unwanted House Guest, which was really purposeful. It's actually a way of externalizing anxiety. It's a tool we use in counseling. Externalizing anxiety gives us a new view of what anxiety is, and it places us apart from the experience, which really allows for the shame to go down. Once it's outside of ourselves, we can have power over it. We can set boundaries around it. So what we do to externalize is we give it shape, color, size, features, and a name. We describe how it behaves. It's bossy. It pushes your buttons and it sends you into a panic at times. It erodes your confidence. It eats at your self-esteem and it chucks your sense of freedom out the door. 
externalizing something means that you get to have feelings toward it without having those feelings toward yourself, like anger or frustration, annoyance, resentment. And that way you don't have to beat yourself up in the process, but you still have the right to feel mad and angry toward the anxiety. It's a frustrating experience to have. And obviously you don't need to be trained in CBT therapy or cognitive behavior therapy to try this out. So help your kids name their anxiety. You can get them to draw a picture of it. Give that character real detail. Then when you address your child's anxiety, you can use its own name and speak directly to it in front of your child. The added bonus is you're no longer fighting against the anxious child. You are a team. You and your kid can pair up and fend off the anxiety character together. Another way to prevent anxiety is to practice daily being aware of your body's cues. Most of us live primarily in our minds and we spend very little time in our bodies, making it hard to notice and articulate when things are subtly off with our nervous system. Getting good at noticing the clues in your body is giving you a great start. And next you wanna have ways to express them And that takes practice too. You need to rehearse, not just when you're anxious, but when you have any kind of feeling at any time. For one, do you even have the emotional language down? I was listening to a talk with uh, Dr. Mark Brackett. He wrote, he's an an emotion literacy expert in the U.S. And he, he wrote and created an entire curriculum around educating kids right from the start about emotions. And he really highlights how most of us, even as adults, are super limited in our emotional vocab. We don't really spend any time expanding it either. So we're kind of just learning to grow up relying on a very few basic emotion words to describe what's actually a much more complex and nuanced experience than that. The good news is there's also other outlets and ways to express emotion and channel anxiety out your body, like through music, dance, art, exercise is a great one, writing or journaling. You can cry hit a punching bag or scream into a pillow. Try increasing the amount you express yourself and maybe pay extra attention this week to see how much or how little your kids express theirs. Start exploring words for fun other than happy, sad, and mad. There's one more trick I want to share and underscore the power of. Validation might seem like a no-brainer, but I have left this till last because I know that we tend to remember the last thing that we've heard, and this is a key piece I want you to walk away with. So many parents worry that acknowledging their child's anxiety gives it more power, and that saying to the child that they have a good reason to be worried, scared, or anxious emboldens that experience. Parents don't want to perpetuate the fear, and I get it. We definitely don't want that. But it actually does the opposite. When parents see their kids freak out about seemingly minor things, they're more readily able to shoot the anxiety down, trying to take the wind out of its sails. 
And they'll say things like, ah, don't be ridiculous. It's just a small dog. Or you've got to be kidding me. It's a birthday party. Why on earth don't you want to go do something fun? And maybe you're hearing it in the tone amusing already. These statements end up belittling the child, not shrinking the anxiety. And when I talk about validation, I am not saying to express to the child that the situation warrants anxiety. I'm saying that given their alarm bells are going off, you can see how uncomfortable and how scary that is for them. That they are feeling overwhelmed and you notice it. And it's okay to validate the experience they're having. Instead, you can say things like, you're obviously really scared of that dog. Your whole body is trying to protect you from it. I can see how you really want to hide or maybe run away to get away from it. I get it. Then and only then will you actually have the ability to reach your child and coach them through it. They will now look to you for reassurance. You can follow up with something like, yep, makes total sense that your body's telling you to protect itself, but actually, I know that this little dog is friendly. Do you know how we can tell? I can tell because it's wagging its tail. It's happy. It wants to sniff your hand, and it really wants to say hi to you. Should we say hi together? Can you feel the difference? Can you tell how one will lead to frustration on the parent's part and doubling down on the child's? And how the other leads to a calming of the nervous system just enough to make an in for the parent to coach their child to improve in some small way. I cannot stress the importance of validation enough. Help your kid feel less crazy and out of control by naming what they feel and saying it's okay to have the feeling. It's a step we often skip, and it leads to a dead end for both us and our kids. Okay, so I feel like we covered quite a bit there. So if you missed any of the points, don't worry. I've provided them in the show notes for this episode. You can check them out there. Um, And I'm looking forward to next Friday when episode two of this first series drops, and we'll be talking specifically about supporting kids who are in the age range of tweens and teens. So I hope you're going to invite a friend to this tribe of parents and join me here next week. I'm so thankful for your ear. I feel honored to be standing in the trenches with you. In the age and culture of things like glossy Instagram posts, mom shaming, and harmful stereotypes, we need to really bravely shed our protective layers and just own our true experiences of parenting, war wounds and all. Really, how else are we going to get to realize that we are not the only ones experiencing the messiness of it all? As parents, we need to support one another. We need to share in the laughter, but also in the lamenting and find ways to hold one another up. And that is my sincere goal for this podcast and for the broader mental health work that I do. Don't forget to take a look at today's show notes where you'll find related resources and my letter from the trenches. If you're wanting to know a bit more about my work, please subscribe to my living room learning page at my.thrive-life.ca forward slash LRL series. I'll be able to keep you posted on new tools and resources that I put out in the world. 
and it'll allow us to get to know one another a bit better. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook where I share links to my projects, offer up free tools to support you and your family, and I keep things real from a parenting perspective. Standing shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in the mud, let's talk again next week. <laughs>